This is an ABC podcast. You can't talk about racism in Australia without hearing from First Nations people. And there's often a lot of history and guilt and grief in the conversation. All the deep-seated stuff, a lot of it comes from uh, we're a huge inconvenience to the Australian narrative. As far as why they hate us, it's pretty simple. We make, we're an uncomfortable truth. Hi, Miyuki Okiranta here. And on Earshot, in part two of his series, Let's Talk About Race, Sammy Shah hands the microphone over to comedian and journalist Craig Quartermain. And just a heads up, there's a little bit of strong language. Sorry, are there any Victorians in the room? They don't laugh in Melbourne, man, they calculate. You're all laughing like beautiful, functioning humans. They don't pull that in Melbourne. They don't, because they got this false sort of, like, we're all inclusive and we, everyone's equal and we all love each other. Sure, Sudanese people make us nervous. <laughs> but during their comedy festival, they'll, they'll do this annoying thing where they will play uh, a welcome to country over the speakers. And I, 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 do, I, I don't mind a welcome to country. You know, I accept the acknowledgement of country. I don't like the phrase welcome to country because it it's token and it's shallow and it also implies white people were ever welcome. That's not me. I'm Sammy Shah, a journalist and comedian. And that is Craig Quatermain. Craig is a... Well, see, introducing him gets complicated. Uh, would you rather be Craig Quatermain, Indigenous journalist, Indigenous comedian, or Craig Quatermain, comedian slash journalist in Australia? Ooh. So what, the country is a variant? Yes, the country is a variant. Oh. Because look, if we are outside, like I've got this thing, I've been outside Pakistan now for nine years. I'm still Pakistani comedian, or at most I get Pakistani Australian comedian. If you go to England or America, you will most likely be Australian comedian Craig Quatermain. Within Australia, I'll go with, probably have to go with Indigenous, if I have to have a title. Again, I'm just playing right. along with your experiment because you know exactly mm -hmm. what I would tell someone that would try to do that to me. Right. Because this is the thing, I always, uh, anytime I present something, uh, the programs and uh, TV shows and any, anything that I'm associated with, if they ever try to put my tribe, clan, um, indigeneity in front of my job title, and it varies from organization to organization. I always like, why are you doing this? If it's a massive indigenous program and everybody else involved is indigenous, it's identifying where we're from. You know, it's not window dressing. It's a real identity thing. Whereas when they do it on some other radio programs and TV programs, it's for them to say, hey, look, we got one. So, you know, it's all about context and inflection and the use of it. Craig and I started out in comedy about the same time, both coming up through the Perth comedy scene. And we're both journalists with ABC radio jobs on our CVs. I'm not sure why there are so many ABC journalists also doing comedy. Maybe we're trying to find backup careers if ABC funding keeps getting cut. 
Craig and I became friends because we were often the only non-white people in a comedy show lineup. And we did what people of color often do in a room full of white people. We find each other for safety in numbers. This was shortly after I'd arrived in Australia, having migrated here from Pakistan in 2012. And even though I'd only been here about a year before meeting Craig, I'd already heard enough strange things said about indigenous Australians to realize racism was in the air. See, within my first few weeks, I'd heard that indigenous Australians are all given free cars and houses, which a quick Google search told me wasn't true. I was also told they were given free home loans, which isn't what a loan is. Also, not true, of course. I was told, well, actually, I'm not going to repeat what else I was told. I was told a lot of things, many of them pretty obviously racist, some of them horrifically so. And a quick Google search confirmed my suspicions about all of them. Australia, I was starting to realise, was shockingly racist towards its indigenous people. Now, several years later, having been around the country and met people from all walks of life, all backgrounds, all points of view, I can honestly say my first assessment was correct. I just didn't know the scale of it. The deep-seated stuff, a lot of it comes from uh, we're a huge inconvenience to the Australian narrative. You know, there is this perception of themselves, uh, white Australians, mm-hmm. that, you know, we just turned up here and, you know, made the best of this country. It's, nah, nah, that's not what happened. And you can look anywhere you want. You will find it was an invasion. It was uh, a brutal uh, genocide. And it was, you know, we were bred out and they came very, very close to doing it. And that is a really hard thing to accept that you're on that side. I, you know, I'm slinging rocks. I got no idea. I got no idea what it would be like to try and carry their guilt. Most humans are capable of empathy. And so if you know that you're on that victorious side, I don't know how people would cope. Mm-hmm. If you're empathetic enough, you may feel guilt. There is the other option. You could just resent those people for making you feel like you've done something wrong when you don't think you have. Just purely from benefiting that there's that. Um, there is also the fact that we are uh, very poor we are, as a race of people. We are the lowest socioeconomic group in this country. It's our country. We've got a chip on our shoulder and we absolutely assert that, you know, whether we mean to or not. And some people's mm-hmm. only interaction with Indigenous people will be from anger and lashing out and they can't see any good in us. So they've never seen any good in us. They've had one experience and they have no intent to uh, relive that. So there's that. And then those people have kids and they teach the kids, Oh, avoid these people. They are bad. It's, you know, it's really quite, it, I know that again, I said there are nuances, but as far as why they hate us, it's pretty simple. We make, we're an uncomfortable truth. An uncomfortable truth. That fits. A truth that poses awkward questions to the myth of modern Australia's foundation. A myth which, when perpetuated, often sounds like this. You know, on Australia Day, 
it's all about acknowledging how far we've come. You know, when those 12 ships turned up in Sydney all those years ago, it wasn't a particularly flash day for the people on, on, on those vessels either. That's Prime Minister Scott Morrison defending his perspective on keeping the 26th of January as Australia Day. For him, it's a day of honouring the sacrifices of those people on those vessels who weren't having a particularly flash day, one of whom happened to be his ancestor. And it wasn't a good day for my fifth great-grandfather, William Roberts. Bunkered down in the light-starved bowels of the Scarborough with 207 other convicts, he had arrived in Port Jackson after a long and treacherous voyage from Portsmouth. He was transported for stealing five and a half pound of yarn, valued at nine shillings. It was January 26, 1788. It was a new beginning for him, but it would have been seemed a particularly grim one at the time. And life was indeed about to get much harder for him. Sick, poor, destitute, thrust into an unknown place and an uncertain future. That's a story the Prime Minister has told many times, and the historical record does indeed bear it out. William got married and settled down in Western Sydney, although real estate prices were probably better back then. They must have been because William was granted 30 acres of land, then another 50 acres of land, all of which he built up into a sizeable farm that sustained future generations financially. Scott Morrison, in his retelling, doesn't ever question where that land came from, or rather, who it was taken from. Nor does he tell the stories of any individual Aboriginal people of the time. Indeed, it's these missing stories that are rarely told to us, which inform our lack of appreciation and understanding of the Indigenous Australian context, and a basic failure of history. Prime Minister Scott Morrison again. When Australia was established, yeah, sure, it was a pretty brutal settlement. My, my forefather and foremothers were on the first and second fleets. It was a pretty brutal place, but there was no slavery in Australia. There was no slavery in Australia. I have a cursory understanding of Australian history compared to someone who's grown up here, but even I know there was slavery in Australia. But I've heard that said even very recently from white friends who are very educated, university educated and everything. They're like, yeah, but you know, we didn't have that cultural context of the N-word because there's no, there was no slavery in Australia. And I was like, yeah, but there was, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, there absolutely was. Um, you know, and for people that think the, the N-word doesn't have a history in Australia, there were patrol groups set between, along the East Coast, uh, sent out to... Uh, arrest and remove Aboriginal people that were living on pastoral land uh, and they were known as nigger squads. They're written down as that. That was the job title. Or you're allocated to this group. You know, that word absolutely has a history in this country. And uh, as far as saying there wasn't any slavery, uh, my grandmother was known as a kitchen gin, as in that was her, she didn't have a name uh, and she wasn't paid. She just had to scrub dishes so she could live in a house or live in, share a house with a whole bunch of other people. We absolutely had slavery. If you're chained to the front of a horse at gunpoint and asked to show people where the water is, you're not a part of the team, Sammy. The thing is, this entire documentary could be five full episodes covering what most non-Aboriginal Australians don't know. 
and how we're racist towards Aboriginal peoples, and it still wouldn't be enough. And my initial plan was to set out and treat this episode the exact same way I've done all my documentaries in the past, interviewing a list of experts and notable figures and dissecting their words for wisdom. So I did that. I made a list of people I wanted to talk to about the state of racism against Indigenous Australians. Because I believe you cannot begin to talk about racial issues in this country for anyone at all without talking about Indigenous Australians first. And my list had all the people you would expect it to have. And I sent that list to Craig and a couple of other Indigenous journalist friends and asked them for their feedback. And they said... It was boring. Sammy's list was boring. It was the same old people that, in, in Sammy's defense, he, you know, doesn't really know. If your only reference point is the same bullshit TV programs that push the same narrative and they need to keep it going, oh, we need a black person talking from the other side. And then you got the black people that are willing to do it for a dollar. Of course, it's going to be the people that you think of. The, the who's who of Aboriginal celebrity media, the, you know, the talking heads that'll say exactly what you need to keep this bullshit narrative rolling. Fine. Fair enough. But then I also started thinking about something else. See, in Aboriginal spaces, there's a saying I really, really like. Nothing about us without us. And it comes from years and years of being spoken about instead of spoken to and with. So... Then I thought, what if I asked Craig to find some new voices, new perspectives, and he can talk to them about things I never would even consider asking. What if, instead of circling the same ground, I gave the mic to Craig and asked him to move the conversation forward? What do you think, Craig? I think it sounded like you, uh, you know, it's a delicate situation, I get it. And so you should probably best to have an indigenous person kind of handle it. I'll be the black handler, Sammy. You didn't use that word, by the way, but let's do it. We are talking to Kimbani. Kimbani's an artist and the first time I saw his work, it hit me right between the eyes. The best part was to find out that you don't need to go to an art gallery or any other carefully curated space which allows certain people in. Kimbani does his work on Instagram. He posts this incredible work for thousands of followers and it's edgy stuff, man. He really pushes it. He goes straight for the throat. It's inspiring stuff. And I asked him whether he sees his art as a form of activism. Yeah, I definitely felt that during the sort of peak coronavirus in WA. It's where you went, you didn't have, like you didn't really have to be physically anywhere because you weren't allowed to be. So I felt that it did have that that presence and it was was doing something mm-hmm. but yeah by now it's like it's and it's only sort of shared you know my artwork shared amongst people that follow my instagram and i do do have that confliction every now and then it's like am i doing enough in the in the physical space i'd like to think that the artwork is impacting people and that you know changes how they see the world and their day-to-day lives but yeah, i'd like to see more more dialogue come out of it i, yeah, I get the i get the share and stuff um it's, I'm always concerned about, you know, slacktivism, whether I'm just enabling slacktivism as well. Uh, slacktivism, by the way, is when people think liking an Instagram post is all the activism they need to do to make a change. It's a lazy way of feeling good about yourself with a click of a mouse, you know, black squares, stuff like that. While we were talking, I wondered about the question Sammy asked me and asking Barney how he prefers being introduced. Well, how do you yeah. feel about that? Because I hate 
I hate being introduced as an Aboriginal comedian. I'm <laughs> very, very proud of uh, my blood and who, who I am and where I'm from. But I always felt that that's a bit of a qualifier for the audience so they can put themselves in a headspace. And when I don't come out and play a didgeridoo, they get, they get upset. And yeah. I'm just curious uh, how you feel about that title when it's put upon yourself. I, yeah, I come, yeah, come from quite a just a mixed mixed background as well. But I always give give priority to you know, announcing that I'm I'm a Nunga artist or Indigenous artist, hmm. just because it hasn't been you know given that platform. Now I don't like having my race put in front of my role. I hate it as a qualifier, whereas there are people that prefer it that way. I get that that can be confusing for some people. Ask the artist. Don't assume, because we are just as diverse as every other nation. Kambani isn't alone in making that decision, in proclaiming loudly his entire identity. So it can inspire others. Model poet activist Gaiala Bales is the same. My heart is good, but the things that you told me that I should do, I find so hard. The white man has left his scars all over my body, and there's no denying that I am a woman of many races, but I was raised Aboriginal, taught Aboriginal, thought Aboriginal, thought Aboriginal, I am Aboriginal, and there's no percent on that. Even though in your eyes I'm too light to be black, but in your eyes I'm too black to be white, well I am neither because my skin colour does not define my Aboriginality and I'm tired of being undersatisfactory. Yes, I have been forcibly assimilated, but I will always know who my ancestors are and they will always guide me and your words, they will not hide me. I am liberated. I am free to be the person that I am meant to be and the things that happened in the past, I won't let them define me. And you, with your white supremacy, will learn finally that when an Aboriginal baby is born whiter than you, blacker than the blackest of blues, or brown like our beautiful rich ground, he or she is already a part of the black minority. Yeah, my name is Gaiala. Thanks for having me. Kaiwanji, it was great to have you. How often are you dismissed because of the fact you're a model and a black woman? Yeah, very often actually. Yeah, I'm dismissed quite a lot, but I'm also heard in a lot of different spaces. Mainly dismissed on social media, I think. Social media is such a big world and a place where a lot of young black women do get dismissed because we are black and we are loud and we want to be heard and we don't care who yeah, wants to turn us down. We'll make sure that you really hear us because we're here and we know that you know that we're here, so we're going to make a big noise. And I think social media is such a great platform for that and for us to have our say and to have our own opinion. What are just some of the ways that racism kind of manifests itself in the fashion industry? Yeah, so I remember first starting out into the milling industry and I was at an event and it was kind of like an audition for a show and I remember going up there and they asked me a question, you know, why do you want to be in the modelling industry or why do you want to be a model? And I said, to show the world how beautiful my culture and my people are. And I was, I think I was the only Aboriginal girl that was at this little event and to see everyone's faces kind of shocked to see that I was Aboriginal and that I was proud of being Aboriginal. There was a lot of white faces a bit upset and a bit like, oh, she shouldn't be proud about being Aboriginal. Mm. Um, but I didn't let that phase me. I didn't let that, um, you know, 
affect my mood because I knew why I was there and I knew that I wanted to show my face and I knew I wanted to show people a different side and another side of how beautiful our culture is and just to expand people's um, minds on you know our culture and who we are as Aboriginal people. I've had a lot of silly, very racist, very discriminatory comments um, in, in every industry that I've been in, I've, you know, in the modelling industry, in the poetry industry um, and just in society itself. And the main question or the main statement that I get is you're too pretty to be Aboriginal. Mm. That's the main one that I get. I still get it till this day. A lot of uh, different creatives will, when, when they ask what nationality I am, and I say, oh, I'm Aboriginal. They'll say, Really? No way, no way you're Aboriginal. You just look like something else. You could be something else other than Aboriginal. I'm like, well, why would I want to be anything else other than me? You're smiling about it now and you've been through it so much. I'm getting wild <laughs> just listening to it. But how do you react to it now? Back then? Hmm? Where yeah, I would, yeah back all of them. Tell me all, how well, many different ways. back then I would kick a big stink. I'd be like, you shouldn't say that. That's wrong. How dare you? And other times I would walk away and I would try and go to the toilet somewhere quiet where I could cry to myself. Um, so there was a lot, lot of different ways, a lot of different outbursts and a lot of different things that, you know, that I handled uh, these situations. But I think now, wow, I never thought I would be able to get to this stage where I could actually take that comment, take it in, acknowledge it, and then educate them and say, hey, that's actually not right. That's a racist comment. And I don't accept that. And I don't want you to say these things to anyone else because you're lucky that I'm just talking to you about it. If you say this to anyone else, they might give you a little punch <laughs> on the mouth or, you know, you might get a little slap or something. So, you know, I like to take these situations as an opportunity to engage mm. and to um, educate people about what not to say or what to say to Aborig young Aboriginal people like myself in any industry. This didn't surprise me at all. It's not that different from a story I shared with Sammy when he asked me about my experience about being hired on a TV show as the felt like a token hire black comedian. Let's let's talk about that impact that this stuff has, right? Where the realization that it, things are not a, a meritocracy, that 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 you know, amongst the many other things that influence why someone's successful, why someone gets things, race is also a big part of those. Um, and and and, and you know, which is coming as a shock and a surprise to many white people in Australia, but everyone non-white has kind of taken this knowledge for granted for years. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was one of the worst experiences of my life it was so demoralizing and but still glad i went through it at least i got to see how the system works that you are a token higher and you're going to be put down at the lower end of responsibility you will be second guessed and you will be undermined and you you know we will get white anted because you're not one of them, but you're here. And to go from being super calm, I mean, I just came back from a European tour doing stand-up to come back to the very bottom of what I believed was my dream job. And little things, like I was actually allocating my ideas to white members of staff before they would get pitched just so that they would get through because everything I suggested would get knocked back. Nobody believes that we can do the job. That's probably what any Indigenous person you talk to in any field, it is 
this air from everyone. They just assume we can't do the job. We're not trusted to do the job. And plus, we only hired them to fill a gap. So, of course, they're not going to be able to do the job. So, no one trusts us to be able to do it. And whether or not they say that, their actions definitely reinforce it. Between Kimbani and Gayala, the biggest difference is that Kimbani is creating art and content without caring about white audiences. Yeah, it's, uh, I never tried to do it through through the white lens. I think the parts of me that are doing it, it's probably probably subconscious because I don't know just the, the edu- education system and sort of what I've been taught. The fact that all my work is in English too is kind of oh yeah, it's <laughs> ironic. It speaks universally to sort of everyone that has been colonised. Gayala, meanwhile, works in spaces where often everyone else is white, including the audience. Yeah, so I first started modelling in 2015 and the reason why I got into modelling was because I couldn't see any models that I could relate to. Mm. I couldn't relate to any of any models, even if they were uh, black or people of colour, I couldn't relate to them because they didn't look like me or they weren't Aboriginal and they didn't have the same views, the same opinions, they didn't align with what I aligned with. So I thought to myself, well, I can either just leave this industry and just let it carry on with how it's going to be, otherwise I can change it. I can go into this industry and change it and change the whole future of what this industry may look like or may have thought to be looked like in the future and start inspiring Mob to change other industries, not just the modelling industry, but many other industries. So, um, I had asked you to go out, go forth and interview um, Indigenous Australians who are doing new things, who are creating new perspectives, who are who are discussing things in a way that that aren't traditionally seen in media. What did you learn from them that you did not know before about the next generation of Indigenous Australian uh, movers, shakers, thinkers? Uh, that I'm old. <laughs> when you articulate it like that, it is a case of people of colour in every industry, we've got to not only be better at it, we've also got to keep our temperament because it takes so little for us to be painted as this angry, ungrateful brownie that can't handle the pressure. What I learned from these two up-and-coming artists is that the anger is still strong. The drive is still there, absolutely, but the uh, professionalism has probably lived at another notch Going forward, will you do a better job of tempering your anger? Why would I? Why should I? I, uh, no, uh, because it's not, I know where to direct it. I don't get angry for no reason, for, for real, you know, like not that long after I originally spoke with Gayala in the ABC studios, I ended up getting profiled by somebody in the newsroom wondering if I'd broken in. I went to go talk to a friend of mine who was on the other end of the newsroom. I walked from my desk through there and uh, got asked, mate, you're right. Somebody just called out, hey, mate, you're right. Now, any Aboriginal person knowing that phrase, you're right, knows that they're asking you, should you be here? It's not, hey, can I help you? Hey, are you looking for someone? Hey, mate, you're right. 
that is someone, that is a white Australian, asking an Aboriginal person whether or not they should be where they are. And that happened to me in the ABC building. And it's one of those innocuous, horrible ones where I know exactly what he said and what he meant. My face is used to present <laughs> programs on TV screens throughout that building, yet I still got profiled. So no, I'm not going to temper my anger. Fuck these people. This episode of Let's Talk About Race was written and produced by Craig Quatermain and Sammy Shah. The sound engineer was Matthew Crawford, and the supervising producer was Claudia Taranto. Next week, Sammy investigates the taboo subject of racism between minority communities. I'm Miyuki Okiranta, this is Earshot, and I hope you join me then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.